I wanted to take this moment to tell you about a program I am in that helps women navigate the journey of realizing their lesbians while in relationships with men. It's a 12-week support program called Coming Out on the Other Side. It is hosted by one of my early podcast guests, Emily Better. Some of the topics include the three stages of coming out later in life, understanding why you didn't figure this out sooner, and why this is so hard. You will go from being scared, confused, lacking confidence, hiding your true self, and feeling alone, guilty, and misunderstood, to overcoming fears, understanding and embracing who you are, being confident in yourself and your decisions, and ultimately being able to come out and live as your authentic self if and when you're ready. Learn more by going to thelatelifelesbian.com. Welcome to the Lesby Honest Podcast, where I have candid convos with later in life lesbians. However, on this episode, we aren't talking with a lesbian, but with the TikTok pastor, Reverend Brandon Robertson. Brandon is a writer, activist, pastor, and public theologian that Rolling Stone Magazine says is spreading the good news of an inclusive modern gospel. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Yeah, I discovered you on TikTok. It's been months now and kept telling myself, I need to see if I can get him on. So I know I gave you a little bit of a background there, but you're part of the LGBT community and also a Christian. And so I would just love to hear your story and realizing that you're LGBTQ and how to reconcile that with Christianity. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's been a long journey, but essentially I, I didn't grow up religious. I grew up in a small trailer park in Maryland with not atheist parents, but just like culturally probably would have said they believed in God, but we didn't go to church or anything. And it was at the age of 12 that I started going to a Baptist church with my neighbors and had a conversion experience that changed my life. Very stereotypical if anybody grew up in evangelical Christianity. I walked down the aisle as they were singing Just As I Am and prayed the sinner's prayer. And within a few months of that, I felt a distinct calling to be a pastor from a very early age. And so really from 12 years old till now, I'm almost 32, I've been on the journey to become a pastor. But of course, a little bit later on in my journey, I started realizing that I wasn't straight. And I also knew very clearly what my church said the Bible taught. This actually happened while I was in college. I went to an evangelical school called Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And while I was there, I started wrestling with my sexuality, but also studying the Bible, which is what my degree was supposed to be in. So what I found over those four years were two major things that changed everything for me. One, every time I would ask a question about some outside perspective other than evangelicalism, I would be met with fear. I would be met with, you're a false teacher, you're on dangerous grounds, you're going to end up going to hell if you keep pursuing that line of thinking. And so six times over four years in college, I got called into the dean's office and threatened with expulsion, not because I was drinking or doing drugs or anything fun. It was only because I was asking questions about the school's theology and the theology we were supposed to believe. But I also confessed to a professor who himself was an ex-gay that I struggled with my sexuality. And so he took me under his wing. Through him, I started studying what the Bible actually said about sexuality and began to realize that it actually wasn't as clear as the church made it sound, but I couldn't say that at the time. And in order to graduate, my school asked that I would go to conversion therapy. So my senior year, I did a year of intensive prayer treatments, essentially trying to heal my sexuality. And by the end of that fourth year and doing an entire year of conversion therapy, I graduated by the grace of God 
And I knew, one, that I could not stay in evangelicalism because this fear that I was experiencing didn't seem to reflect Jesus or what I had understood God to be. And I also knew that I wasn't going to be able to change my sexuality, so I had to figure out what to do. And there's a lot of stuff that happened after that, but funny enough, we're talking the day after my ninth anniversary of being publicly outed. And back in 2015, I had my first book contract to write a book about being an evangelical millennial that was questioning and moving towards a more progressive spirituality. And I'd also moved back to DC where I'm from and was part of an organization called Evangelicals for Marriage Equality which was an organization that supported the civil right of LGBT people to be married, even if we didn't support the theological belief that it was okay to be gay. Because I was a part of that organization, my publisher called me after I turned in my book and said, we're not going to publish this because of your position on sexuality. And Time Magazine decided to do an article about me losing my book deal and accidentally out at me. I wasn't out yet, but in the headline, they the headline of the article was Young Evangelical Leader Loses Book Deal After Coming Out. And so that pushed me out of the closet very quickly. It's how my parents found out. And it was a traumatic moment. I received a lot of, obviously, backlash from the evangelical world I came from. Many professors, pastors wrote me emails and letters basically telling me that I was, I was done. I was gone. I had walked away from the faith. But at the same time, I started realizing that there were so many Christians who were either LGBT inclusive or LGBT themselves. I found a space in a different kind of Christianity where I could be myself. I could be on this journey. I still wasn't sure what I thought about sexuality and Christianity, but I found true inclusion. And then over the next few years, I've gotten a couple other degrees focused on sexuality and gender in the Bible. I've really become passionate about helping to take to the public what most scholars know, which is that the Bible doesn't actually condemn anything akin to modern LGBT relationships and that this anti-LGBT teaching is relatively new in Christianity and it's observably and verifiably harmful to LGBT people. And so my whole mission these days is really to help queer people find their space back in the church if they want and to call the church to change what it teaches and how it relates to the queer community. Well, having a Time article written about you is one way to come out. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, again, not what I expected, but I'm grateful in hindsight for it. So, Yeah, how did your family react to that? My family is kind of live and let live type people. So I remember calling my mom on the street of D.C. being like, you're going to get on Facebook and see this article. But I don't really know what it means. I wasn't calling myself gay yet, but I said, I am not straight and I don't know where this is going to end up. And they said, well, we'll support you. And they were also just flabbergasted by the amount of hate that I was receiving from evangelicals and from Christians. And I think so many people, that's their experience. You watch the church do terrible things to people who didn't choose to be queer or any of the other things that the church condemns. And even non-religious people know that that's not in alignment with Jesus or the values of the faith. And so... Yeah, you brought up an interesting point about how the anti-LGBTQ stance is actually relatively new. So I'd love it if you kind of went into that. Two different perspectives. One, if you look through the broad history of 2000 years of Christianity, the world of the Bible was a very different world than ours. And the way same sex male sexuality was primarily expressed in the ancient world of the New Testament was Roman men were permitted to have sex with anyone 
who was a lower social status than them. And that means any women, any male slaves of another culture that they had conquered, young boys. And so that was the primary context that homosexuality was being practiced in the biblical world. And that in the early Christian movement was what they knew of. There wasn't a ton of examples of gay or lesbian committed loving relationships. There were a few, not many. And so what the Bible is reacting against is this very oppressive way of engaging sexuality that happens to be same sex. And it's tied up in ways that the ancient world saw masculinity and saw men as superior to women and to be sexually penetrated by a man. Sorry to be explicit, but made one like a woman. And that was viewed terribly in a patriarchal culture. And so it's all tied up in some very backwards ways of thinking that even most modern conservative Christians don't agree with. So it makes sense that both the biblical world is reacting negatively towards that practice. And as Christianity evolved, there was a lot of pushing back against this one version of sexuality that was being expressed. But if you look through the next 2000 years, as Christianity spreads to different cultures and different eras, what it teaches about sex and sexuality changes dramatically. And it really isn't until the 1900s or so, and really even more like the 1960s, that the religious right in America was losing influence and religious liberalism was actually winning largely the, the biggest churches. For instance, if you were to come to New York, the historic churches here that are massive and beautiful, 75% of them are historically liberal, progressive congregations. That was what was winning in that moment of history. And the way that conservative Christians devised to gain cultural superiority again was to find a few wedge issues that they could unite politics and religion around and get a bunch of people on board. And of course, they chose abortion and sexuality. Um, this was at the height of the so-called sexual revolution, where LGBT rights were becoming a thing. Stonewall was happening around this period. And so it was very easy for them to cling on to a few of these verses in scripture that they didn't really understand and hadn't done the work to get the culture and the context of the biblical world. And they said, look, the Bible condemns homosexuals. Homosexuals are causing the decline in our society. It's a threat to our families. We all know the tropes. They said pedophiles. They said all sorts of things. And that kind of fear really does rile people up. And so if you can tell people that the gays are coming to take away your family and the liberals are coming to kill all of your children, which is essentially the message of the religious right in that period, you can get a lot of people on board very quickly. And they did. And since then, really, in the last 10 years, there's been an explosion in Christianity of evangelicals doubling down and being anti-LGBT and trying to make all sorts of arguments about the threat that we are to family values, the dangers we are to the psychology of young people, and all sorts of contrived ideas. But when you look at the history, it's not based on sincere belief or even sincere study of the Bible. It's based on a desire to have privilege and power. And they've been quite successful, sadly. But thankfully, there is also this emerging movement. I'm just one of many, many voices in the LGBT Christian world that have risen up in the past 20 years or so and are showing the truth about how this has happened and calling the conservative Christian churches to account for their false teaching on this topic. Yeah, because it wasn't until 1946 that they even translated homosexual, like they took arsenicoitai. Or, can you kind of go into that? I don't, I know vaguely kind of because I've watched the documentary and all yeah. that, but. Yeah, totally. So essentially, in Greek, there are about 13 different words for homosexual, lesbian. Those relationships, again, did exist in the ancient world. They weren't prominent, but there were many words that 
referred to sorts of relationships that might look like relationships we have today. The Apostle Paul, when he condemns homosexuality, uses a word that didn't exist in the Greek language. It's a word arsenokoitai that he made up. Most scholars agree that the Apostle Paul created this word. And that alone tells us that whatever Paul is condemning is not any of the other options for what sexuality is. It was something unique. And it was referring to sexual exploitation. And there's another thing that you'll find in almost every passage in the Bible that condemns homosexuality. It's also linked to idolatry. And this is common in the ancient world as well. Many pagan cults would have a goddess or god of sexuality. And often those gods or goddesses would have priests and priestesses in these temples that took sexual sacrifices as a way to honor the deity. And so there weren't words in Greek to specifically describe that. And it's likely that Paul creates this word arsenokoite to describe this strange Greek pagan practice that's taking place and the sexual exploitation that's tied to it. And that word for 2000 years, if you look at most Bible translations up till 1946, none of it actually explicitly refers to sexual uh, homosexuality. It refers to sexual deviancy, some tra translations will say. Martin Luther's Bible from the 1500s says those who molest boys. So it was talking about pedophilia. But in 1946, strangely enough, it was the liberal Bible translation committee of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible that was trying to do a new translation of the scripture that was highly accurate. But this was also right after the science of sexuality began. Again, the idea of sexual orientation only shows up on the scenes in the 1800s. And so homosexuality as a concept was pretty new and was beginning to gain public acknowledgments and people began to understand it. And so the translators of the Revised Standard Version said, okay, this word arsenokoitai that we don't know exactly how to translate, it means something about men having sex with each other. And there's this new concept, homosexuality. It seems like that would be a good modern update to what this word is. And they, after some debate, chose the word homosexuality as the translation of that word. Within a few years, that translation committee undid that. And they said this was an inaccurate translation, but the damage had been done. The Bible had already been published. And then dozens and dozens of other English translations then translated the word as homosexuality. Funny enough, this past year, the new Revised Standard Version updated edition just released. And if you were to look in that version of the Bible, based on the Revised Standard Version of 1946, the word homosexual is completely removed and there's no reference to homosexuality. Not because queer people are winning the debate, but because that's the good scholarship and most scholars agree. And so it was a fatal mistake that opened this door and the scholars have tried to undo it, but the damage has been done, unfortunately. Yeah, and I'm curious for people, even if you take the term homosexual out of the Bible, even if you take all that out, let's just take the six verses out entirely. Yeah. The problem that I'm running into with people is their comeback or debate is that, oh, well, God created man and woman. And all throughout the Bible, you just see straight relationships and marriage between a man and woman, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say two things to that argument. One, in most literature throughout all of human history, the majority of people that are referenced are heterosexual people because heterosexual people are and have always been and will always be the majority of people. LGBT people are a minority, of course. So we wouldn't expect or hold any other literature to that standard that because there aren't gay relationships, it must mean that they're condemned. No, 
It just meant that a majority of people that are writing and the privileged people that had access to learn about writing and language and being able to compose a text like the Bible, all of these people are privileged people that are likely not queer. So it's not a surprise that there's not a ton of references to gay relationships throughout the Bible. That being said, the Bible is not consistent on what marriage is, on how sex should be. And there are dozens and dozens of different examples that are blessed by God throughout the Bible, which conservatives don't like to acknowledge, but there's no prescription that says marriage is between one man and a woman. You will never find that definition anywhere in the Bible. You have a reference in Genesis that says the first two humans that were created are joined together. The word marriage is never used. And the word Adam, ha-adam in Hebrew, is a gender-neutral word. And so if you look back at Jewish scholarship, which we should do more often since the Bible is a Jewish book thoroughly, you'll find that Judaism has always held that there's a diversity of gender identities beyond male and female. And because of that, there is a diversity of relationships that can be formed out of that. But the last thing I'll say is... I do believe that there are queer folks in scripture. Again, they're a minority, but anybody who does even a basic research on what a eunuch is, Jesus himself talks about three kinds of eunuchs, those who are born eunuchs, those who are made eunuchs, and those who become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In the ancient world, some eunuchs were people that were punished by having their testicles crushed, and it was a way to punish somebody. There's another category talked about often in scripture of people who are born eunuch, if you look in the ancient texts, either refers to somebody we would call non-binary trans or a gay person. And if you look at Greek literature in my book, Gospel of Inclusion, I take some of these ancient Greek texts and show that they're describing gay men when they're talking about eunuchs. Uh, they're describing men that are attracted to each other that were pushed to the side of their society because this was not the dominant way that sexuality was expressed. But it reads like you're talking about modern queer people. And I do think in Acts chapter 8, the first person that's baptized into the Christian church in the book of Acts is this guy named the Ethiopian eunuch. And we have a great deal of evidence to suggest that at very least he was queer, meaning gender non-conforming, and very possibly that he's a same-sex attracted person. And he's baptized as the first person and also a person of color into the church at the very beginning. Uh, and the purpose of that story, even conservatives will acknowledge, is to show that God's kingdom is expansive and that unlikely people are coming and welcomed into this movement of God. And so I would say you see a story like the Ethiopian eunuch, along with stories like we all know David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi. There are all these other stories that are at least a little sketchy from a heterosexual lens that I think we can say that there's some queerness in the text. But even if we say there's not, we wouldn't expect there to be. And it's a really bad argument to say, well, because the Bible's silent on this, that must mean it condemns it. Yeah, those are good points. And kind of like the whole, the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive on a lot of things. And then as far as what you said about all kinds of marriages in the Bible, I mean, polygamy was a pretty common practice yeah. back Polygamy's, then. People had concubines, mm. which are essentially prostitutes that are owned by a person. And many of the righteous men of the Old Testament had concubines. There are daughters sleeping with their fathers, fathers sleeping with their, like, there are all sorts of very strange relationships that come throughout the scripture. And again, we would expect that because this is an ancient society that's spanning over 3,500 years. And ancient people did things differently and saw the world differently than we do. And we have to remember that when we're engaging with the text and not try to pull stuff from the Bronze Age 
into our modern world and expect it to fit because that just doesn't work. It's not good history. I think the other thing they say is even putting all that aside, well, only man and woman can procreate. But the thing is, is like there's a lot of straight married couples who can't procreate for some reason or another, or maybe they don't want to. So it's like that's that alone shouldn't be the basis for what makes a marriage valid. Totally. And I was recently I did an interview with one of the leading New Testament scholars who's a Jewish woman named Amy Jo Levine. And she made the point that from her perspective as a scholar, the way she understands the Bible, the command to be fruitful and multiply, which God gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis, a few chapters later, that command is already fulfilled. You get to the Tower of Babel and the earth is already filled to the brim, so much so that a few chapters later, God destroys the world because there are too many people and they're too corrupt. So the idea that be fruitful and multiply is the imperative that all relationships need to fall under isn't true. It happened in the book of Genesis itself. It's not meant to be a command for all times. And just as you said, there are plenty in the Bible itself of people who can't have kids and who don't have kids. Jesus himself didn't have kids. Most of the apostles didn't have kids. So are we going to say that they are somehow less than because they're not in relationships where they're procreating? No. So it's a weird arbitrary standard to try to hold queer people to. And also, we're in a moment of crisis where there are lots of kids that don't have homes. And so I think that we should be supporting queer people who want to adopt kids and actually be good parents and give kids good homes. Maybe we don't need to be producing all, a ton of more kids right now. I find it kind of ironic in a way, and I don't know if that's the correct word. I feel like ever since Alanis Morissette came out with that song, like we're all using it incorrectly. So I guess interesting that the people who are pro-life and pro-birth and, and pro-adoption, but not if you're gay. Like I, I'm pro-adoption so long as it's a straight couple, basically. Yeah. And even that is based on some pseudoscience that Children need a male and a female in order to be properly formed developmentally. Again, millions, billions of people in the world today do not have both a father and a mother or have a one parent who's ill. Like, There's no psychological basis that says that you need a male and a female as a parent in order to have a healthy upbringing. Yeah, it's just this is what you have to do when your argument starts to fall apart. You have to start grasping at straws and making all these arbitrary arguments. So how did you decide to start a TikTok channel where like you talk about all of these kinds of things? And then what has that, I imagine you probably get DMs all the time from people struggling with their sexuality and coming out and all of that. Yeah. I mean, I never wanted to be on TikTok. When it first came out, I thought it was that app for Gen Z to dance on or whatever they did. But it was during the pandemic that I was pastoring a church in San Diego. Everything shut down. I had a lot more time by myself. And I noticed one of my clergy colleagues had started a TikTok and was just doing interesting little funny videos about what it was like to be a millennial clergy person. It's like, why not? Let's try it. And my first few videos were horrendous. Me and like a clergy caller dancing. Never go back and look at them, please. <laughs> I'm I, going to right after this. <laughs> they're very bad. So I did that for a while and I didn't like it, but I just figured, hey, what if I started talking about the things I like to talk about and just see what happens? And so I started talking about progressive Christianity. And really, it was over a period of like three months that my account went from like 2000 followers to 20,000 followers to 50,000 followers. And that was surprising to me because it showed that the younger generations, I sound so old saying that, but the younger generations 
we're actually interested in substantive conversations about the Bible, about spirituality, about theology. And so I kept going. And here we are probably three or four years later. I forget how long it's been, but it's been a really incredible journey to get to keep talking about what I like to talk about, uh, being a nerd on TikTok about the Bible and hearing stories, like you were saying, of especially young people who are like me, realizing that they're queer, knowing what they think the Bible says, not knowing what to do, and getting to watch them have resources at a young age that I didn't have or didn't know about. Not just with me, but there are so many clergy, progressive, and queer all over TikTok now, and the message is getting out there. And so now I'm just passionate about it. Almost, I talk about it as evangelism, which makes me a little uh, nauseous on one hand, but it is. I, it is spreading what I believe is the true good news of Jesus and helping people see that there's a better way to be Christian. And lots of young people, and now everybody, because everybody's on TikTok, seems to resonate or be interested in the conversation. With that said, there's also a great deal of hate and a great deal of trolling and people debating and all of that. I think it's worth it. You, we've got to be out there speaking the alternative message, recognizing that there's going to be pushback. And when people do push back with vitriol and meanness and nastiness, I think it shows people that just like I found out when I was in college that this response of fear was not true because truth has nothing to fear. I think it shows people that if you have to be defensive and angry and cruel about your beliefs, then there's probably something wrong with what you believe. Yeah. And you recently did a, I forget what it's called now, but it was like an hour long debate with, there was like four of you, Candace Zubernot was... Yeah. And it, she's been on my podcast before and, and a couple other people. And then there were like four other people who were, I guess, did they consider themselves like ex-gays? Yeah, ex-gays. Yeah. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was great. Jubilee is this network that creates the show called Middle Ground that's been around for a while. And that's what they do. They bring together people in hopes of finding a middle ground between two very opposite beliefs. It was good because I think if I can toot our own horn a little bit, <laughs> I think our side showed that one, we were far more knowledgeable about these topics than we're often characterized or caricatured as. A lot of conservatives just say the liberals water stuff down. They don't actually care about the Bible. All of us on the LGBT side cared about the Bible. We cared about what the truth was. But also this paradigm of fear versus freedom, fear versus love, I think came across very clear. The other side was telling their story as if hell was on the line and that if you didn't agree with them, hell was going to be what was going to happen. And in fact, they literally said that they said LGBT people go to hell was one of the prompts and they all agreed with it. And I think just the witness of us getting to be there showed that there's a alternative, deeply biblical perspective and that we're not afraid. You don't need to be afraid about this stuff. I think that painted a contrast that I was very proud of for our side. And I hope people have seen that, especially young people and saw that the ex-gay argument just doesn't work. None of the ex-gays actually said that they were truly ex-gay. All of them said that they still were attracted and were choosing to not engage with that. And I think that's fine. If you want to choose not to pursue sex with the same sex, fine. Just don't tell people that you've been healed. Don't tell people that you can change your sexuality. And that was my big point in that whole interview was like, be honest. You all are trying to be people of the truth. Well, tell people what you're doing. Don't pretend that you've been miraculously healed because you haven't. Yeah, that was my next question or your thoughts on 
the ex-gays and we know that there's certain ex-gay organizations that have come and gone and or people who say they're ex-gay and then later they come out as gay and whatever but there's still quite a few out well i don't know about quite a few but a handful at least of ones that write books they go on podcasts that's the thing i've run into is when i've told people they're like well what about that ex-gay so-and-so what is I don't know. What are your thoughts there and how to combat that? Yeah. Well, funny enough, I'm actually in the process of starting a nonprofit that is supposed that is one of the things we're doing is highlighting how many conversion therapy and ex-gay ministries exist. It's not just a few there. I guarantee anybody that if you do a simple Google search, you will find one in a nearby town around you. There are thousands of ex-gay ministries across the United States, and they're well-funded, and they're becoming more and more prominent in many spaces. And the United States hasn't banned conversion therapy and that kind of stuff like some other countries have. So people are free to keep preaching this message, which, by the way, has been deemed harmful by every psychological association in the country. They say that there's no such thing as conversion therapy. It doesn't work. It has never worked, and it actually causes verifiable psychological harm. I will acknowledge, though, and I think we all acknowledge, there is a fluidity to sexuality. I think it's a minority of people that fall on the far ends of the spectrum. I'm completely 100% gay or I'm completely 100% straight. I think a lot of us get close to the edges, but I think everybody would admit that there's some fluidity. That's fine. If you're a conservative Christian who is primarily attracted to the same sex, but you say, I'm also slightly or can be attracted to some of the opposite sex, and I'm going to choose that because that's my values. That's your choice. Great. Do that. Live your life. The problem is when you say this is what's required as a Christian, you need to be attracted to the opposite sex. You need to form a relationship with people you're not romantically and sexually attracted to. That's harmful. And just the claim itself that you've had people that are gay, that are now healed and have been converted and changed to heterosexual I can count maybe on one hand people that actually exist in the world today that that's true for or that apparently appears to be true for. Almost every ex-gay, if you listen to, will tell you, I still struggle with same-sex attraction. They talk about it as a temptation, which means that they've not changed their sexual orientation. It just means that they're choosing to not pursue that because they have beliefs that say it's wrong. And again, I'm not opposed to that. I disagree with that theology. But if that's what you believe, then fine, go try to be straight. That's for you. But don't lie to people. Don't tell people that psychologically you can be rewired or spiritually that you can be healed by God. Because I don't think God makes mistakes and I don't think God wants to or can heal people of their sexuality. Because if God was doing that, that would be admission that God had messed up, that God didn't intend people to be the way that they are. And I think that makes God too small. God is too big. God doesn't make mistakes. God delights in all humans that are made in God's own image. And that includes queer people. And so if that's true, there's no reason for God to change us in any way. Yeah. And I'm curious what your perspective is on why people are so anti-gay. Like, it's one thing to be like, well, I don't believe in that or whatever. But then to be so opposed to it, almost to the point of being angry about it. I don't understand that. Yeah. I mean... To a degree, I do understand it. I think two things are at work there. One, for very religious people, if you grow up in a system that tells you that this is a heaven and hell issue, then it makes sense. For instance, this is not to justify these people, but it makes sense 
that a parent, for instance, of an LGBT kid would respond with great fear and great anger and great anxiety if their kid decided to be queer because they think that means hell. Again, that's not to justify that behavior, but at least you understand that these people really believe that this is what's happening and that this is demonic. And that's why combating that theology and having good theological arguments to help people see that there are other ways to understand this is so important. But the other thing is we're in a moment of tremendous shift as a society at large. And there was a way that American society and Western society in particular has worked for the past couple hundred years that was generally patriarchal, that was generally binary, that was generally founded on these principles that require there to be man and woman, nuclear families, all of this. And so when queer people start popping up, and as we've seen in recent studies, younger generations are coming out more and exploring their gender more, it begins to destabilize the structures and the way that people understand the world. And if you've been set in your ways for 50, 60 years, and now all of a sudden the most basic things about your world begin to shift, you don't even know if there are, are two genders, and that's what you've understood since you were a, a kid, people are like, this is the worst thing that could happen. You all are actually trying to change reality. This is their mindset. Again, not justifying it and it's not true, but I get where the fear is coming from. And again, this is why queer representation is so important. Queer narratives in media are so important. Voices like yours being out in the world are so important because the more people see and hear and get to understand who we are as LGBT people, the less stigma will be around it and the fear will begin to diffuse. Because the way you change people's hearts and minds isn't through debate. It isn't through demonizing them. It's through allowing them to experience the beauty that is a queer person or a queer relationship. And so what's sad is that that takes a lot of time. Cultural change takes a lot of time. And you're right that when people act out of fear, they do really terrible things. And there's legislation that continues to be passed that's harming queer people. We've just seen a story this week of a non-binary kid that was murdered by fellow kids. That is because of this fear and misinformation and should light a fire under us to keep doing the work to get our stories out there and to keep pushing against this fear with truth, with our stories. Because if we don't, then there will be a great reversion back towards this old way of being in the world. I just think part of my work, the one thing I've learned is that what doesn't help is just writing off all the people that are anti-LGBT as backwards bigots because so many of them don't want to be backwards bigots. They just don't know. And what they do know is coming from political leaders and cultural people that are trying to make them afraid for their own political gain, which is why we've got to keep speaking and be louder than the opposition. And that's hard work. And when you said the binaries and all of that, I thought on that middle ground episode, it was really interesting to have the perspective from an intersex person. I've actually reached out to her and I think she's going to be in my podcast at some point. But I think it's that was really interesting because it's like that's proof right there that you could be born with both parts or two of one or like yeah. inward of one and outward of an, you know, whatever, yeah. all kinds of combinations. So it's like, and again, intersex people have always existed. Um, I was just, I'm in a PhD program right now. And earlier today, we were reading a text about an intersex person in ancient Greece. And so this has always been around, but the problem is these voices, I mean, it's such a small amount of people and their voices are so marginalized that most people, if you knew an intersex person, and I think that was why Abigail being on middle ground was so helpful. To show that story really does. And you saw it on the conservative side, like mess with the whole paradigm because you have this thing that you're most afraid of 
sitting in front of you as a person. And that changes things. That changes the way people think. Yeah, I think intersex people, trans and non-binary people especially, we need to make sure their stories are being heard because if people realize that the world has always been this complex and actually they were living in a delusion of uh, an oversimplified world, that might make people a little bit more compassionate if they can realize that. But if they think, and this is what I think conservatives really do believe, that the world is actually simple and we are just coming in to destroy what is true, well, that sounds nefarious and they're going to react negatively. And that is what they're being told by Fox News and whoever else. That's obviously not true. Anybody who's done a history of sexuality throughout the ages know that's not true. But that message needs to get out there through storytelling. Yeah, I love the way you said that about they're in a delusion. What I've kind of noticed is that the world likes everything to be a binary, not just sexuality, but like conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, black, white. It's like everything has to be you only have two options for everything, it seems. Yeah, and it's not helpful. And I fall into that all the time, even in this conversation, me using the word conservative to write off a certain group of people. There are a lot of evangelicals that are moderate and open minded and are moving on LGBT issues, for instance. But it is so much easier, unfortunately, to form movements and to do things in a binary world when you can make an enemy out of another person. And I do think that's what's disrupting and destroying our society right now is that we've gotten so binary on everything. And this is a critique even of our side of this. It's just not that simple to say that all the people on that other side are the same. They're all nefarious and evil because when you do that, you make sure that none of them will ever listen to you. But if you can, and this is why I try to do debates when I get a chance to do it, not because I think I want to win an argument. I don't think it actually helps. But if people that are very opposed to us as queer Christians in particular can see, I'm not just standing there saying you all are backwards bigot and homophobes and willing to engage, hopefully that changes their heart and minds. Now, I just want to make one caveat there. I don't think that every queer person should try to engage with their conservative family, their former church. A lot of those people are deeply rooted in fear, are abusive, and are harmful. And it's not always safe or good for queer folks to put ourselves in situations where we have to either defend ourselves or try to share our story in a place where it's not going to be heard. But I do think that there are those of us who are called in this moment to speak into these spaces and, and, and do that work. And if you're called to do that, I think now is an important time more than ever that we do try to engage those on the other side of this debate and change hearts and minds while our other siblings are doing activism in a different way, calling out the hypocrisy, the dangerous teachings, the backwards policies. I think both are necessary to actually create meaningful change in the world. Yeah, that's yeah, that makes sense. And you recently became a pastor, right, of a church in New York? Yeah, I was a pastor in San Diego for four years, took a little bit of a break, and now I'm back in a small little church here in Queens. And it's a lovely community. We're like 20 people, been around for 150 years. And yeah, it's a church that just became open and affirming. And so we're on this journey together, figuring out what it looks like to have an openly queer pastor and how to be more inclusive to other folks in our community. Because in our neighborhood, there is no other affirming church around it. It's crazy in New York City to think about, but it's true. And so we really have an opportunity to try to be an inclusive voice in a neighborhood that doesn't really have it. Kind of a final thought that I have is, so most of the people who listen to this would be, in my estimation, probably 30 plus that are either just now coming out or they're thinking about it or they're 
not sure or maybe so for people who are later in life lgbtq who haven't come out to say their immediate and i guess i'm asking for myself as well because i'm 40 and i haven't come out to my family now all my friends and all of that know and some of it didn't go well but i think family is kind of a big a big one so what would you say to people who and in a way it might be more difficult for someone who's quote unquote late life 30 plus to do that yeah i mean i would say a couple things one i hope all of those who are later in life and coming out know that they're not alone as cheesy as that sounds i talk to so many 60 year old people 70 year old people that are just being able to reconcile their faith and sexuality that have straight family relationships and kids and spouses this is a journey it takes a long time the world is changing fast but it's still changing and it takes time and it's not safe in a lot of places in our world or in our country for people to just come out of the closet like it is for me in new york city and so don't allow what you're seeing on social media or in public make you feel this pressure that you need to move at some certain pace it's a journey and it's different for everyone for the family thing, I would say you need to determine if that's if it's worth it, meaning I do think that we are all more healthy when we're able to live out and open and authentically. And I think a lot of us need to reckon with reality that if there is no hope, like if our family is very set in their ways and they're not going to change and they're going to reject us and that is the only possibility and we're sure of that, then build your chosen family. Build the family outside of your family. Find queer people and other people that can support you and use that as your community of support. But if you do think that there is a way that your family might be open or you just feel like you're done hiding and you're willing to accept whatever the consequence might be if you come out, then having that chosen family is also just as important. But the last thing I'll say is, and I kind of talked about it earlier, when you're coming out, your goal is not to debate. And your goal is not to defend. When you're coming out, it should be, this is who I am. I know you probably have thoughts about it. You're not required to sit and listen to the thoughts. You already know probably what they're going to say. If they're religious, for instance, you know the arguments. You just say, this is who I am. I understand we see things differently. And if you want to continue to be in relationship with me, I would love to do that. And the way you'll change your family's heart and mind isn't by showing them a book that says the clobber passages don't condemn gay people or debating politics with them. They're going to change when they see you living authentically. They see you living a healthy and whole life. They see you in a relationship for the first time. It's going to be awkward. It's going to take time. It's most of the time not going to happen overnight. But if you have the ability to live authentically in a way that your family can see it, I have seen it dozens of times over the course of some years. People will soften up because their conceptions and stereotypes and backgrounds and beliefs about who we are as queer people, that stuff takes time to dissolve. So if you have the opportunity to come out, you're safe enough to come out. Try to be in relationship. Try to let them see your life. But don't try to debate with them because I think the psychological data is actually very clear that virtually no one will change their mind because you gave a good argument about your existence. They're going to change their mind because they see you living healthy, happy in a whole life. Yeah, if you can do that, do it. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that perspective. And I think another thing to keep in mind that I've recently thought of is like, if it took me almost 40 years to come to this full realization, acceptance, acknowledgement, I can't expect anyone else to totally be okay and accepting and change their whole thought process in like four minutes, you know? Yeah, and I mean, 
again, there's a lot of, I see a lot of like resentment and frustration and anger among queer people. And it's rightfully so because we are living in that transition points where there is now a generation that many of whom have families that are so supportive that they can come out when they're five years old or 10 years old. And I even feel that I came out of my twenties and I still look back at my friends who came out and are like, oh, I was out in high school. And I have jealousy and a little bit of pain around that because it'd be like, what would life have been like if I could have done that? Don't live in that. Your journey is your journey and your family is your family and your experience is your experience. And there's a unique space for that. And none of our stories are just our own. Also, we have so many forerunners on this journey of being queer and doing this work. And I just think keeping that perspective that we're on this ongoing journey and our own story helps the liberation of other people. And thank God that younger generations now can come out easier, even though there's still work to do. That perspective, for some reason, has helped me process my own journey and, and not be frustrated, as frustrated with the folks in my life that won't change as quickly because they do come from a different era. They come from a different world. And of course, it's going to take time for them to rethink everything because we are asking them in many ways to rethink everything if it's coming down to sex and gender, which again, are some of the most basic things that we learn early on in our journey. And we're telling them they've learned it and held it wrongly for 70 years. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's true, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, definitely. Well, I really appreciate your time today. And people can find your books, your podcasts, all of the things at brandonrobertson.com. That's B-R-A-N-D-A-N. I'm really grateful for you cultivating these spaces and sharing your story and hosting these conversations. This is what changes hearts and minds. And I'm glad your community exists around this podcast. And so thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. I invite you to dive deeper into conversations from this podcast. Join our community on Slack. Here, you can connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, and engage in meaningful discussions. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be answered on the podcast. Together, let's build a supportive space and shape the future of the show. Join us at Honest dot show forward slash slack see on the inside